I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I Welcome to My Dilettante Life, where we hear from people who have cool or unusual jobs about their professional lives. I'm podcast host and resident dilettante, Hannah Binder. This is uh, yet another episode of My Dilettante Life in season two. And today I am interviewing Chris Lang about your um, career in movies and specifically film directing. So um, just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got into this field um, as a profession? Yeah, it's an interesting story because I took a, a very, um, I had to find my own way. <laughs> so um, that's, I don't think it's as unique as I thought it was at the time, but you know, growing up in Oregon, there's not really a film industry there, but I did know like in high school that I wanted to do films. I saved up and bought a camera and, you know, all my toys eventually ended up burnt because of my special effects shots that I was trying to uh, achieve at that point. Um, and then, you know, I went to school at University of Oregon and my degree was in electronic media and video production and then a minor in theater arts and a certificate in film studies. So I tried to like, they didn't have a film school. So I just tried to cobble together what I could to um, kind of broaden my horizons there. But because there's no film school, there was no support system after um, so once I graduated, I went right into the workforce, uh, working at the restaurant that I had been working at throughout college, um, and then continued to cook at uh, McMinimins in Portland for a few years while I saved up money to make my own films. And so um, at first it was just a, you know, it was always a dream to work professionally in film. Uh, that was the goal. But since I didn't see any path on my my idea was, well, if I make a film, you know, it'll be the best film ever. It'll make the Sundance and then I'll be made. That's all good. I can just do make whatever movies I want. People will bring trucks full of money to my house. <laughs> but you know, unfortunately, that isn't what generally happens. Maybe in like a one in a million chance, um, you know, you might as well play the lotto at that point. So um, instead, I did start making my own films. Um, and while I loved them, uh, sadly, Sundance did not. And, you know, in retrospect, you realize that that should be expected. Um, but rather than get discouraged, I realized it's just a, it's a building block. So I layered my building blocks as like, okay, that's my first film I made. It was a total budget of $4,000, which took me two years to save up. And then, you know, cool. I made a feature. People liked it. They thought it was nice, but what's next? And so then I used that feature to go around and be like, look, I, you know, I can make movies. Anyone want to help me make a movie? I saved up a little bit more money. I had a couple um, outside sponsors that chipped in a couple thousand dollars. So then I had a $15,000 movie. Um, and that one ended up doing really well on a festival circuit. So then I just turned that into, um, finding $25,000 for a movie. Um, and then at that time, I also moved to Boston. Um, and once I got to Boston, there was these ads for volunteer PAs on lifetime, on the lifetime movie. So I was like, okay, well, you know, at that time I was working on a whale watching boat. So I'm like, whatever I, I wanted to be filmmaker. So I might as well work on a film set. And um, so I went to the set within two days. They were like, hey, do you want to get paid as a catering assistant? Because we actually need like this role. So I'm like, cool, yeah, I'll do that. And then from there, um, it's all about the network. I made tons of contacts on that film set. And suddenly I had, you know, they needed PAs everywhere. A PA for people who aren't in the film world is a production assistant. The grunt level, like you're 
basic level entry point is um, the PA position. And so I did that for about a year and then it just kept working its way up into other positions. So that was my Genesis story. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I have to say, when we were uh, at the University of Oregon together, I had no idea that this was like your um, dream <laughs> career. So I think I knew that you were kind of like, um, I guess I want to say a lot of people that I knew in like high school and college would do kind of like movie making as a hobby, you know, like they would make their their films and they would use whatever mm -hmm. special effects they could come up with. But it was always like a thing that they did purely for the enjoyment of it. And so I think I had in mind that that was, that was sort of what people did <laughs> when they were our age back then. Um, and so it was so cool to then see your career start to take shape as like an actual person in <laughs> works in movies professionally. So. Well, it's interesting because um, I think a lot of people get discouraged because for that same reason, like, you know, we de definitely had a lot of friends in college that had, you know, they make their, their fun movies, their fun projects. They had, you know, we had duck TV that um, people could make their shows for. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. And of all the people I went to school with, I don't really know any of them, maybe two that still professionally work in um, film or television. And so, and I think it's, it is really easy to discourage if you don't find a path there. And I think one thing that's important is to realize is that if you're finding, you're not finding a path that they're out there. <laughs> it took me a while to find it, but, um, you know, it's just a matter of asking people because I, I found a lot of people do want to help people out to get them involved into the industry. Because at this point, we're honestly on the movie I'm doing now, we're having trouble finding people because there's just so much work in Boston that um, they're all taken. <laughs> oh, anyone who might be listening and is interested in breaking into the <laughs> <Yes>. film industry, <laughs> read the books. Um, so, Chris, can you tell me, do you remember the first time that you really learned about working in movies professionally? I, I think, you know, people think about actors and actresses, but I mean, you've really been behind the camera. So when was the first time that you really thought about that as a career? I mean, uh, back in high school, my senior paper was on, it was called the nuts and bolts of video or film production, which is not the most original title, but I, I thought it was at the time. I thought it was the best title ever, but um yeah, I, at that point, you know, I, I learned how many people are involved in making a movie. I mean, you look at the credits at the end of a movie and there's hundreds of people there and those are all people getting paid for this job. And a lot of them are decent paying, especially compared to, you know, being a line cook or a whale watching deckhands. <laughs> those are very uh, minimum wage jobs. And so, you know, film careers, it's definitely, um, I think at that, that was the point where I realized, okay, you can do this. I just don't know how you do this. Uh, and so that was always my goal throughout college and beyond was like, okay, how do I become a crew person? And I occasionally crews would come through town. Like I lived in Astoria. Astoria. And so I think it was um, into the wild crew that came through and um, they were at the restaurant I was working at and we went out drinking one night and just like, they were talking about, Oh yeah, I know this is what we do. We love this. And I'm like, Oh, I want to do that. And then they're like, okay, cool. And then I left town and I'm like, okay, but now who do I talk to? <laughs> Um, they didn't leave you so like yeah, a golden I, business card to exactly, you know, yeah, Steven no, Spielberg. <laughs> yes. So it, that was, it was always, I was always aware that it was an industry and there's a lot of people involved. I just didn't know how to break into that industry. Gotcha. So has there been someone that you see as kind of like a role model, whether it's someone you've worked with directly or, you know, kind of one of the titans of the film industry <laughs> that you, you know, admire? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, 
it's weird. There's this guy locally that I work with now. He's actually the executive producer on this movie, but he's done a lot of these Lifetime movies. And our, our filmmaking styles couldn't be more different. Um, he is very, um, he, he's very well-versed in the technicalities of filmmaking, and he has a very particular style. Um, I'm still kind of learning my style. Uh, but he, what he showed me, because he's just, he has, we have very similar personalities, even though we have very different filmmaking styles. And he showed me that you don't, like, directors don't have to be these like crazy, you know, coming onto set, yelling at people like this has to be done. This has to be done. And it doesn't have to be like, they're absolutely amazing at every single aspect of filmmaking, because what you do with filmmaking is you, you bring the people that will create it and let them do their craft instead of being like, okay, I have the perfect plan for wardrobe, the perfect plan for art, the perfect plan for camera, for lighting, for all those different things, because some people do, there are some filmmakers that are like that, that are prodigies of this. And I respect that so much, but you can't bank on that because the odds are very, very, very likely that that's not you. <laughs> and so you need to have faith in the people around you. And he showed me, he's such an accessible guy. He was the director on the very first project that I worked on. And just watching him work, it's like, okay, like he, this is what how I would be a director. This is how I would work with people. And he trusts the people around him to be like, okay, you know, what's the best angle for this? Do you think here, here's my idea. Let's look at that. But then what do you think? Cause you've been studying this for your whole life um, to like a director of photography. Um, and same with like, like hair and makeup. Like, I'm not going to be like, okay, I think we need the, you know, red five rouge, whatever <laughs> color. <laughs> I don't know what that means. All I know is it's like, you know, show me what you think it should look like. Let's look at that. And then if there's some tweaks, I might have them, but I'm not going to come in with a full design. Um, I, and so learning that from a professional like that, I think was really helpful. And now, you know, we're, we're really close. We work on projects together all the time. I've been his assistant director for the last couple of years on his Christmas movies, which has been fun. <laughs> um, so, and, and just, then, um, you, you said you're trying to, or you're still sort of discovering what your own voice and vision mm -hmm. are. Um, do you want to just share a little bit about the types of movies that you've directed over the last, you know, 15 years? Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. I mean, I know, I know narratively what my style is. I love, I love mystery. Um, I love endings that aren't what you expected, but are the only way that the story should end. I love endings that end right before you get the full conclusion. So that way you can put the last couple pieces together in your head. Cause I feel like to the audience that gives you ownership of that story. So it's not like, instead of seeing those are the last shot being two people sailing off into the sunset, living happily ever after you might see the two of those people meet after this long journey and they just look at each other. And there's that moment of like, okay, let's carry on. And then it cuts to black. And it's like, then you can imagine what they do together as opposed to like, and then in the epilogue, <laughs> cause you know, epilogues tend to be like that. They just, tend to, um, it's the, the author's version of what happened afterwards but sometimes it's nice to be able to come up with your own version with these characters and that's what I like to do with my movies um I definitely like I'm more like a horror mystery thriller um fan but at the same time I do eventually want to get into more like historical fiction but done in a very realistic way like I'm, I'm very grounded in my filmmaking I think I'd like to take uh fantastic situations and then put them into a real world um so that you could believe that this could happen to anybody, to yourself, to, you know, a friend or whatever. And so narratively, I have that locked in. So what I'm trying to come up with now is my visual style. Um, and it's tricky because in my past projects, the features that I did that were mine, written, produced, you know, everything done <laughs> by me, I didn't have the budget to really, 
establish his style because I'm still learning how to make a, a movie to begin with. Um, and so, you know, we there's little glimpses of what I'd like to do, but um, it's still something that I'm developing. Whereas on the bigger budget things, there's already a style baked in because it's like, okay, you're making a Lifetime movie. You're making a A&E, you know, murder mystery thing. You're making um, a true crime docuseries. So there's a very particular way that you shoot that. And so there's not as much room for creativity. So um I'm using elements of that and I'm ready to start experimenting on my own stuff on a bigger level with that, which is sort of where my current filmmaking path is. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I'm talking with film director Chris Lang. I would imagine um, kind of being forced to operate within those lines as you're talking about like directing in these different styles. Um, Mm -hmm. probably like, does that help you then develop your craft more because you're kind of being forced to operate outside of, um, yeah, like your original vision? Yeah, absolutely. It gives me a chance to also see, you know, when we shoot it this way, what is that telling me? Like what emotions are you feeling when you see a shot this way? Whereas, you know, if you see someone in a frame sitting up or, you know, if they're like in the little corner, like what, how do I feel about these different things? And so it does give me a chance to experiment, even if they're things that they won't use. If I'm running ahead of schedule, I might be like, oh, let's just get this shot. Let's see how it looks. Let's try this thing. So I do get to play a little bit. Um, it's just the result doesn't end up on screens because they don't use those ones. Um, so it is, I am honing a lot more and I feel much more confident in my abilities now before it was all about, I don't even know how to make a movie. So let's get the pieces together and you know build it from scratch with no instructions. <laughs> but after doing a few of those, now I kind of know all the departments, what they're supposed to do, what everyone's supposed to be doing on set. Um, That's one of the helpful things about starting from the bottom and working your way through almost every single department up to a directing position is that, you know, I know when I ask for something as a director, what that's going to entail. And so if someone comes to me and is like, that's insane, we can't do that. I, I can relate and be like, okay, you're right. Let's figure out something else. Or I can be like, no, well, here's my idea on how you would do that. And having worked in those departments without, you know, driving a dump truck through a a wall that we don't want to replace. (laughs) So um, do you have like at this point, kind of like a a dream script or a dream story in your head of a movie that you would like to make once you have the budget and the control for it? (laughs) I do. I have a few, actually a bunch of projects in various stages of development. My, my baby, that was my next feature that I want to do. It's called Coffinberry Lake. And it's, you know, set in the Pacific Northwest because Coffinberry Lake is close to Astoria. Um, and that is, it's the original concept of that was thinking of it as like, um, you know, like a, a, a horror movie where like kids were dying in the woods sort of situation. But instead of presenting it that way, it's, ta- uh, it's explored through the investigation of that night. And so that makes the the night actually feel like a real event where like, you know, kids were out camping, doing their thing, and then they died. And then it's all about this lake where this sort of thing keeps happening. And this detective is trying to investigate the serial code that everybody thought they had solved. And um, there's these psychological elements that it's like, are there ghosts involved? Or is he just kind of losing his mind? And it's just, this is exploration of really, it's of grief um, for the detective to see, you know, how far someone who is pushed to the brink will go to either you know it's almost like weaponizing grief in a way and so that's the story that i've been working on probably since college really um but it's one that i'm like i'm i don't want to half-ass this thing you know i need like a budget and i need a good cast and a good crew and so i've been keeping that one in my pocket and there's actually a company i'm talking to right now that's interested the one thing about film production is companies they'll be like 
um, cool, we're interested, we're interested in these 20 things, and then we'll figure out which one, you know, <laughs> gets the most legs. And so you have to just keep pushing it and pushing it and hope that eventually um, that will be the one that they're like, okay, that one, <laughs> that's what we're in the mood for this week. <laughs> Do you feel like you need to, though, um, especially if it's like really your baby, that you want to wait until like you've achieved a certain level of kind of mastery and development of your own style, and then you'll be able to do it justice or do you feel like you can do that now <laughs> no I think I think this is where I'm at now I'm ready for this one um I feel like I've learned the skills I need to tell this story it is a smaller story because I do have bigger one definitely um I actually have a a series that's currently being optioned about uh I work on a lot of the docudrama murder mystery shows like uh true crime things and those are blowing up right now but I I made a series that's kind of like that um, Lifetime series Unreal, where they explore the behind the scenes of making these shows, but it's like a murder mystery about the murder mystery shows. <laughs> so it's fun, and it's it's definitely very dark humor, which I love. <laughs> um, and that would be that's one that I, I would be ready, I think, to do. But it's it's a much bigger budget, and then beyond that, I have a series that where I'm trying to like create a civil war series that would be kind of like Band of Brothers is for World War II. Um, but for civil war, but that's even bigger in scope. So that's the sort of thing that's like, okay, that's, that's like a decade down the line. <laughs> so I have different goalposts throughout, but, um, I think Coffin Berry Lake is my next, um, the next feasible one in my journey of growing as a filmmaker. Well, when you, um, when it gets optioned, you'll have to let us know and I can put the word out, um, through the podcast here, you know, we, we yes. talked about it and then it'll become a reality. So, Tag. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so tell me, um, what has surprised you about working in film direction and, and films in general? Um, I'd say one big surprising thing is how, yeah, this is going to sound, I don't want to, uh, when you're running a lot with a lot of people that are working in film, they do have that expectation that like, cool, I have a film job, I made it and it's great. And sometimes that's, that's where they stop. And then it takes a while for that. Like don't really continue putting the work past that point. And so they become really complacent and then they just get stuck in these positions that they never really wanted to be in. And then it just becomes a job that they don't really love anymore. And so what I've found is, to be good at filmmaking, you really just have to do whatever the job is you're supposed to do at that film because so many people just don't. <laughs> and so I was surprised at how easy it was to move up by simply just doing the work I was supposed to do. Um, you know, you do a job really well and people remember working with you and then they want to have you on the next movies. And then you just start talking and saying, okay, well, you know what I'm really into, I really would like to direct eventually. So I'd like to start working up the, you know, um, as a distant director ladder, which normally isn't actually, it's despite its um, title, it's not that intuitive to go from like second assistant director to first assistant director to director because they're very different departments. That department is all about logistics, scheduling, timing, and then directing is obviously creative. But by working my way up in that department, I was always next to the director and always watching the director and always letting the director know like, you know, this is really cool. I'm really learning from you. And so then when they were thinking down the line, like, oh, the director that normally does these is out, but hasn't Chris been doing that? You know, it, it just, you start to plant the seed that, okay, that guy that worked really hard for me wants to be a director. So when the opportunity does come, you know, that is how you move up. And that was surprising. I didn't think, I just always assumed that, you know, I would have to somehow come into a slew of money and be like, okay, it's my movie now, <laughs> you know, and then I wouldn't, that would be the only way that I would direct. And that just hasn't been the case. I've been able to kind of, 
burrow my way into that easier than I thought. <laughs> it's not easy. Don't get me started. It's just, I assumed it was impossible. So. <laughs> well, and so it sounds like being motivated and responsible, dependable, competent, um, just goes a long way. Even if you're working in catering and you want to <laughs> like spin that into eventually getting into the director's seat. So. So what are, one of the things I talk about a lot here with folks um, is like the misconceptions people have because the, the professions that the folks I interview tend to have are a lot of, you know, very creative professions or ones that um, I guess I would say like ordinary people don't have a lot of exposure to. Mm-hmm. And definitely I would say like film direction and films in general is an area where we have a lot of like preconceptions about what it means to work in the industry so what are some of the biggest ones that you've found from other people? And that's actually perfect because that reminded me of what I was going to say, which is one of the misconceptions about filmmaking is that idea that, um, you know, suddenly you hit it and you're like this big star and like, you know, I'm in the movie, so I'm a big movie star. And I feel like so many people feel like that's that has to be the result. Otherwise, what's the whole point? Um, and so I think that is the misconception is that actually working on a film is much different than then celebrating the film afterwards, which is the part that everybody else sees. The film work itself is long. It's, you know, minimum 12 hour days. Um, on our shoot, it's only 12 hour days because we can't afford overtime, but on bigger movies, they can go. The last one, when I did, I, I was uh, just a coordinator on it, but it um, they had days that would go 20 hours because they're just like, we have to get these scenes. And so we just keep throwing money at it. So people, you know, your paycheck goes up, but it's like, by the end of it, it's like, is it worth it? Because you're just really... You, um, you know, it's, I think recently, if everyone remembers the, um, there was the near strike for the union crews and stuff for that exact reason, because they've, what's happened is, um, some of the streaming services were getting a discount on, on union rates because they were, they were a new media, but they're no longer a new media. Now they're like such a big, uh, source of, of funding of all these films. And so they were paying people less than they should. And then also working them way more than they should, um, and we're not talking like, you know, oh, it's a 10 hour day. Like 10 hours is never a day. It's always 12 minimum. And so, um, I mean, maybe some are 10, but most films are 12 hour. And then, you know, if you work 20 hours, get two hours of sleep, and then you're back the next day to do more work, it's, that's not sustainable. And so um, I think, you know, people should understand that there's a lot of work that goes into movies, like a, a lot and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, mental breakdowns and, um you know, exhaustion, these different things. And so that is something that I'm trying to do differently with my sets. I am trying to make sure that we keep it within a 12 hour day because you don't do your best work after that point. And then, you know, what you could have been done in 12 hours and a reasonable amount of sleep takes 20 hours because you're just, you know, beating a half a wake horse <laughs> and you know, doesn't want to keep moving. I, I don't blame it. <laughs> Yeah, and I do. Um, I mean, I feel like I have read maybe more coverage in over the last year or two of just some of the really um, harsh working conditions for mm-hmm. folks in in film and television. Um, but so it sounds like, am I right in thinking that you're kind of talking about this in between place where um, the work is hard and maybe you're not like going to Cannes and wearing, you know, glamorous clothing and getting your, you know, getting photographed on a red carpet. Um, but that doesn't, that's not the only experience that people should expect to have working in the film industry. There's a lot of people who 
I guess like toiling in obscurity has kind of a negative um, <laughs> cast to it, but like you don't have to be famous to enjoy mm -hmm. and find creative fulfillment in making films is what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's definitely, you know, the camaraderie is great. Like I love the crews we work with, um, you know, every now and then you get kind of a bad apple, but honestly they tend to be, more outsiders to the film process that are like, I'm going to make this movie. And so then they try to run a film in a way that doesn't make any, you know, they just, they don't know the best way to run it. And so it becomes very inefficient. And so, um, but the actual, you know, the crews, they're, they're so tight, you know, that you work end up working with the same people on project after project and, and it's fun. It is a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. So what do you wish that people knew about, your job and the, and the film industry in general? Um, I think the best way to answer that is what I wish I knew about it um, earlier. I do wish I would have paid more attention to like my, especially if we're talking specifically directing and creating film. Um, I wish I would have tried honing my specific voice earlier. Um, that's something that I just, I felt so, I think you're just so confident in how you sound that you're just like, okay, well, obviously this is me. I'm going to make this and this is what I do. And some people that really clicks nicely, but um, I also had this weird impression that like, oh, I don't want to take in too many other projects and try to copy too many things because, you know, I don't want to be in, be uh, influenced by other things. But truthfully, you can't, you can't make something without knowing what else is out there because otherwise you're just going to start making things that people discovered, you know, 75 years ago like like oh look i can use a jump cut well yeah <laughs> you know that's this is obviously a very rudimentary example but you know you look at what movies are doing now and instead of going to them and being like wow that is amazing how am i ever going to do something like that you should you should start taking it apart right away and being like okay you know obviously in star wars they didn't build an entire space station and blow it up so like let's look at this how how did they achieve that with what they did um you know, and make people believe that just by the visuals. And so I wish I would have been a lot more critical of different things I was watching and a lot more taking it apart at a much younger age. And it's funny because they said in college, you know, like, you know, analyze these, take it apart. And I was doing it at such a surface level that like, I thought I was like really getting deep with it, but then, you know, it's just, it is a lot of work. And so if you go over it once and you say, okay, well, cool. I analyze it. I'd say go over it five, six, seven, eight, nine times and just keep going because that's how you're going to break it down. You're going to understand how people are like, if you, if you see a movie that you love and you're like, this is so cool. How do they do that? You just have to keep watching and you have to keep analyzing and keep just breaking it down. And it's it unfortunately ruins the movie by the end of it, but it's, it's, if you want to learn how it's done, that's how you have to do it. You know, you want to learn how a house is built. You need to look at all the tools and all the pieces that go into it. That sounds really difficult because I would imagine like um, you would it would be most helpful to do it with the movies that you find the most like fascinating. But then if it ruins like your favorite movies, <laughs> that's so oh, hard. Yeah. You have to make sure it's worth the value you're getting out of it. Yeah, Michelle, my wife cannot watch like TV shows that she really like. Well, not it, like the sh reality shows are the worst. I'll watch this with her, and I'm just like, oh yeah, well you, you can tell that they filmed this a different day because it's you can see daylight back there, and she's like, stop pointing out all the errors. <laughs> And it's not just that. I mean, that's just, that, that's easy pickings. I mean, like, all the shows are done on the fly. So obviously there's going to be a million mistakes, but, um, but then at the same time, it is enriching because um, there's a lot of shows we do watch together where she's like, Oh, I really like this. I'm like, yeah, this is what they did in the scene that really like is different, you know, like notice how they shot these people this way. And so that makes you feel like, you know, this, you're in this weird, fancy, you know, 
expensive world, but then they show these people more handheld and a little rougher. So it feels like you're kind of on the streets and, you know, you're sort of in that environment and then those two never mix. And so it just feels like two separate worlds. And she's like, Oh, okay, that's cool. <laughs> Very cool. Or you could also just um, only ever watch Troll 2 because it's like so <laughs> notoriously badly made that, you know, everyone uh, can pick it apart, I guess. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it is also, there's no shame in watching bad movies and seeing what they did wrong, too. That's I do a lot of that as well. I, I have a particular affinity for watching terrible movies that I just love to analyze and be like, how did this happen? <laughs> So what would you say are um, the coolest parts of your job? Um, the coolest parts for me, I like, I mean, I love people. I love getting together with people. I love, I'm not as extroverted as you would expect. Like a day of set is fun for me, but by the time it's over, I'm exhausted because like I'm, I'm sort of a split half introvert, half extrovert. Um, but I'd say my biggest highs are, you know, working with people, getting them to um, perform their best. Sometimes it takes a little push. Sometimes it takes a real big shove. Sometimes I just step back and say, okay, you know what you're doing. Just do it. <laughs> but um, seeing someone be able to accomplish their best work and then have that to add to what I'm creating is is one of my favorite things because it's like, wow, like someone created this thing that now and now I get to play with it and you know if it's a performance if it's a piece of music if it's um you know a shot that's composed really well if it's a piece of artwork in the background that's like oh cool I can make a really ironic shot this um it's just so neat to see all the people coming together and then it's it's like they're giving me like presence in the editing room (laughs) I mean but it is also just working I mean it's I, I don't mean it just sound like what their work is doing is you know like the only value it's 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 not the fact that just the fact that they're giving me that but it's that we're working together on this and then we become a lot closer and you get to know people and you get to um you know start to explore things through their eyes and see their perspective on it and it just it opens up your world a lot more too have you always wanted to learn more about a thrilling weird or mysterious job do you know someone who would be a great interview subject Feel free to reach out with suggested topics or the name and contact information for potential guests, with their permission, of course. This show isn't limited to interviewing people who are experts in things I've tried. I'm happy to feature the various interests of my fellow dabblers. So then on the flip side, what would you say are the most tedious parts of the job? <laughs> editing. I hate editing. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I don't hate it. It's fine. It's, I, I don't have the patience. Um, it's I like doing like a rough cut, but um, editing is hard for me because I get like one draft done and I'm like, oh, it's close enough. But then to get this, you have to just be so fine tuned and it's just you alone into the computer. And um, yeah, I don't I don't love that. And I love writing much more because even though it's the same situation where you're alone with the computer, your your possibilities are endless, whereas editing everything is there now. <laughs> and so you know, you, you have to kind of make what you have work. And sometimes it's like trying to beat the hardest level on a game and you just keep trying, keep trying. And it's like, this isn't happening. And so you have to step away. Um, and it can be frustrating because you don't have any new tools. I mean, you can, you know, you can do reshoots and stuff, but usually you don't have money for that. So you have to kind of <laughs> base it on what you have. Um, but yeah, unlike writing, writing's nice because it's just a blank canvas. So, you know, you can be like, oh, let's have a space alien up here. Why not? Let's see what that does. And then if it doesn't work, then well, cool. That didn't cost anything. We'll just get rid of the space alien and now we'll make it a, you know, a ghost. 
Do you, um, do you always edit your own stuff or do you have, um, folks who you kind of trust to, um, I guess, achieve your vision with editing? Um, it's usually a mix on, on bigger projects like these lifetime movies I've been doing. Um, I've had an experienced editor, but because we can't usually afford to have them on for the whole time, I'll do most of the work and then I'll hand it off to them to do all the fine tuning and like color correction. And then we'll send it on to a, like, um, an audio mixer and all the different other aspects, but, um, yeah, usually, but then, and then on other shows, sometimes I'm just shooting the footage and then we send it off to New York or whatever, and they go put it in the shows. So, um, and then my own movies, I generally, I actually work with some people back from college that I'll, um, you know, we'll kind of pass it back and forth until we get to a point where we feel like it's ready. <laughs> ready enough but, and hopefully yeah in those cases you you know that you have kind of like a shared enough vision where you you trust that they're that you're all on the same page i guess yep yeah and i think that's something really important is you have to surround yourself with people who are on your same page they're very i've worked with very very talented people who just don't have the same vision and it's never going to end well <laughs> like someone's not going to be happy and generally depend it just depends what your position is but you know if it's if the person who's writing and directing the movie wants it done one way and you're like, oh, I just really feel it'll be better this way. It's always going to be the writer director person that wins out because it's their movie. And so, um, you know, I, I've learned to really step back if I'm acting in a different position on people's movies, I just try to stick to the job that I'm given and then maybe offer some thoughts. Um, and then, you know, leave it at that because it's just, everyone has to find their own voice. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of, um, probably my misconceptions about what it means to work in like a, a restaurant where you have like the head chef and there's a reason why people talk about too many cooks in the kitchen. If you have the one person with their vision and everyone else is devoted to achieving their culinary vision, then it's going to work out versus having mm-hmm. like people kind of going their own way, doing their own thing. That's not going to mm-hmm. be so helpful. Yeah. And I think one of the st- most important things, especially as a director is having the strongest vision that you can, because people respond to that. The only, the most, the time that things get so disjointed the most is when people feel like the person in charge doesn't actually know what they want or what they're trying to do. Uh, and it becomes very clear very quickly if that's the case, because, you know, you have to be really on, on set, like, you know, with, when an actor's like, okay, should I be like, you know, sad? Should I be like depressed? Am I like anxious? You know, what, what's the emotion here? And you're like, Oh, let's just do all of them. You know, like, you don't have time to do all of them you can they don't have time to get into all those different mental states you know you have to have at least a starting point and it's fine to be like okay look i think you're really anxious in the scene let's try it that way and then they go through it and you're just like ah, okay you know that that was good but i think i think we need to tweak this or move it this way but you know you should always have at least an answer to start with and then you know if it doesn't work then adjust to that but if if you're just like oh let's just try everything that there's no that just means that you don't know what you want. And then they're like, well, I don't know what I want then. So what am I supposed to do? (laughs) And so even if it isn't your final vision, having a strong starting point just gives everyone something to latch onto and then build their visions out from. And so it doesn't have to be super detailed, but it has to be strong and um, be able to hold up throughout the process. Okay. So it sounds like everyone's kind of, okay, I guess looking to you for direction, you might (laughs) say. (laughs) Oddly enough. (laughs) Yeah. So um, what are the biggest differences that you see between doing this professionally and those people who do it as a hobby, you know, kind of like fiddling around at home, the, making the, the movies as kids or whatever? Well, one big thing is there, there is a reason 
why movies have such big budgets. And that's because one person generally can't do it all. Um, now, you know, I just saw, well, not just, I saw last year, uh, Bo Burnham's Inside, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, but I think it's important to remember for anyone that looks at that and is like, well, see, one person can do all that is that he's been developing his professional career since he was 16. And this is 14 years later. And so, you know, yes, he did that all on his own, but it took him a long time to learn all of those skills. So, you know, if you look back at his earlier works, you see elements from that. Like there's one music video where he had those like green lights that he has in the background of his welcome to the internet song. And I remember seeing that I'm like, okay, I know exactly where he got that idea. And so he, he's collecting all these pieces from his past work and then putting it together. And so people who are doing it more as a hobby or just starting out don't realize that it doesn't just miraculously appear. It seems like it because you just watch this and you're like, whoa, he did that. So it's doable, you know, but you have a lot of work to do. And the reason there's a lot of money is because you usually have a lot of different professionals and a lot of different positions that know lighting design. They know these things exist. They know costume. They know how camera placement works and how it tells the story. And, you know, if, if it's an evil person where the camera should be, if it's a good person where the camera should be, how, you know, and then once you know those rules, you can start to break them and, you know, throw off audience ex expectations, but you have to be doing it with a purpose. And it just takes a lot of studying and a lot of, um, you know, people who know what they're doing to teach you how to do those things. They don't always come intuitively. But there, I, there's always the, there's always the exception. There's always those prodigies out there. I just know I'm not one of those. <laughs> Well, but I think it's good um, to hear, yeah, you talk about kind of seeing like Bo Burnham, for example, his process, because I think, yeah, as just like a spectator, it's easy for, for me or someone else to sit back and say, wow, like, he, you know, it looks so um, like, like something that anyone could do. I mean, he's just sitting in the same room all the time and it's not like he's got a bunch of CGI. So yeah, I should be able to do that. Um, so to hear you say, like, you've seen, you know, how he's been developing his ideas and his process alongside learning those technical skills that most of us don't have. That's really like, it's not, I don't want to say it's like discouraging, but it's, it puts things in like realistic terms of what most of us should be able to do on our own. <laughs> well, for me, and that's the thing is it should be discouraging, but for me, it's actually much more encouraging because sometimes I feel like you look at something like that and you're just like, how would I ever do that? But then you just have to realize it's something I've come around to the last couple of years, especially as I feel like, especially our generation, a lot, we grew up with this idea of like, you can do anything, you can be anything, do what you want. You're, you can be the best at everything, you know, but um, you have to work at it. This is the part that was always left off is like, you can do anything you can do. You could make Bo Burnham's inside, but you can't just do it right now. You need, you know, years and years of work and lots of experience and all the putting in all the other stuff. And so, um, you know, that's, especially in the last few years, as I've, um, once my daughter was born, I decided, okay, this is a time I really need to figure out who I want to be as a filmmaker. Because when I come back from my maternity, um, taking time off. I, you know, this is, this is it's professional, you know, like before, I guess before you have a kid, it feels like you can kind of just sort of go about, you know, figuring out what you want to do, work your jobs and stuff. But now life feels very real. And so I've focused on developing my voice a lot more in the last three years than, you know, any time prior to that, I would say. Okay. Would you say now with the amount of experience that you have that you consider yourself an expert in filmmaking <laughs> and film direction? Um, I would say at this budget level, but it's not a very big budget level. Um, and I think that's something um, 
you know, I've worked on bigger films, never as a director. Uh, the biggest project I've directed is, I think it was like a $500,000 budget. Um, and so, but I've worked as like a production coordinator, a, a supervising producer on bigger, you know, multi-million dollar films. And so it's, it's tricky because there's a lot more pieces involved, but they are all run in the same style. It's just like, you know, working a kitchen is a great example. Cause I used to work in big minimums. And so I used to work in a kitchen that had three cooks. And so, you know, I was very awesome at that three cook thing. And then all of a sudden I went to the, um, how was it, the roadhouse for their big festival and the kitchen there has like, you know, 30 cooks working at once. And they're like, Oh yeah, you don't have to do everything. You just have to do this one task over and over and over again. And I was really bad at it because I was so bored. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, it, it's the same stuff, but it's just bigger. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I, I would say I'm an ex I'm, I'm very experienced at taking nothing, like I starting from absolute scratch and creating a film career that is developing in a really positive way that has the potential to make me an expert down the line at a much bigger level. And, you know, it's, I haven't settled yet. I'm still moving upward as fast as I can. And, uh, it's there was nothing magical about it. I didn't suddenly get like you know a big windfall or you know a big a lot of win or anything like that. It was just working with productions, working with people, and then just building myself up. Have you had any uh, moments or experiences where you've kind of realized, like wh whether it's you know viewing a, a finished product or I, I don't know something where you've sort of realized, like wow, I really do know what I'm doing and have learned so much in, you know, whatever amount of time. Yeah, actually, I had a really vivid moment like that. It was when I did my first Lifetime movie. Um, they sent a script over and it was like, it was, the script was fine, but the, you have to really craft it within a certain budget. So, you know, if you know you're working with $500,000, you know, you're not going to have a big car chase. You're not going to have big explosions. And so there was a lot of things in that script that was like, okay, we just can't film it for this. And this is the first time they were kind of taking a chance on me as a director for these bigger movies. And so the producer, Mark, sent me the, the script and he's like, look, we want to make this thing in November. I know it's October. This is the script they want. What can you do with it um, to make it filmable on this budget? And so I'm like, cool. And I was actually working another project. I was literally on set with this other project. And between like scenes, I would go and like work on it. And in three days, I just plowed through and deleted like a half of the half of the script and rewrote that whole half and sent it back to him. He's like, this is perfect. This is amazing. And I was like, wow. And and it it didn't dawn on me that I had actually become like a seasoned screenwriter because I'd never sold a screenplay. I'd never done anything, but I've written so many screenplays that all the little pitfalls that you usually fall into on screenplays that I looked at millions of times and like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Oh, I shouldn't do that. They were so ingrained that it just flowed out really freely into something that wasn't, you know, brilliant by any means, but it was very uh, very adequate, I think is the best way to put it. Like someone could look at that script and be like, okay, cool. This is a movie that we can do. And then, you know, I continued to tweak it over the next month before we shot. But um, yeah, I think that was a moment where I realized if you keep doing something long enough, um, it just becomes natural. You don't even realize it. Wow. Yeah. That, those moments are great because it really... <laughs> Um, shows you, yeah, like how much progress you've made and, and how much you've grown um, in your profession. Especially so when you go back and read your original script, you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but they're important. I think that's the important thing to remember is that like, you know, any script that you write that you're, you, if it feels like it's not going anywhere, you know, just stick to it, try to finish it. Because even if it's not great, even if you don't think it's great, you're learning it. And then the next time you do one, you're going to notice things that 
that were in that that you didn't like, and then you'll you'll correct it. And you just keep doing that over and over again. You just keep correcting, correcting until suddenly you can just spew out something that's very serviceable. Or, you know, maybe you're a prodigy and it's, it's perfect and it won all the awards. But, you know, at the very least, there's, you know, a dozen Oscar nominated script, or, you know, even that was six Oscar nominated scripts every year. And then like 5,000 that weren't even close to an Oscar, but they all got made. <laughs> Well, and made people, you know, have a Happy, good yeah. experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. enjoy. And another 5,000 that were a bad experience, but they still got made too, so. <laughs> those are not yours. Yours would never be those skills. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope not, yeah. but um, we'll see. <laughs> so what would you, I know you said um, you, you kind of had some advice for your earlier self um, about mm. kind of how to... Um, yeah, just kind of uh, to start some of the learning that you've done maybe a little bit earlier. What would you tell someone who was interested in going into film direction and filmmaking? Um, I would say ask, you know, talk to as many people that you can. Don't worry about being influenced by other people because everybody is influenced by other people. Even, you know, everybody. Like, you look, talk to Steven Spielberg. He'll tell you where he got his ideas from and he'll list. Um, I can't, I mean, it's been so long since I took film studies classes, but I'm pretty sure, like, anything any any number of filmmakers from the 60s and 70s that were you know well known he would be like yeah I, I took I took their ideas and then I made them my own and you know it's a similar thing throughout like everything that everyone's doing they learned because they saw other people's movies so you should watch as much as you can you should analyze as much as you can and you know even what's great today is you have YouTube that has like billion billions like hundreds of thousands of videos that are literally just analyzing films and film moments and scripts and screenplays and characters and these are just people's opinions, but you can watch those and see how people are breaking these down. And you don't have to take it as, as gospel, like, oh, this is the definitive, you know, this is how this is done. But you can, it, that's what someone took from this. And so you can see how they watched it and then took this away. And then you can start watching things with that same critical eye and see what you take away from it. And then be like, okay, why did I take that away? Is it because, you know, the shots were all set with the blue tinge? Did that make me feel something? Or was it because, you know, the contrast levels were high. Was it because this actor is amazing or was it because the music just hit at the right time? You know, what made me feel that? And uh, oh, you're yeah, saying, what uh, you can attend the University of YouTube Film Criticism. Um. <laughs> it's, it's just a resource, exactly. Like, it's there and it's free. Um, so, you know, talk to people. And then the other thing I'd say too, you know, some people are lucky. Some people come very naturally gifted and they can just be like, I found my funding, here's my movie and I made it and it's brilliant, fantastic. Um, that's not going to work for everyone, but it also doesn't mean that you have to give up because I'm the other route, which is I'm going to work every single film set I can and learn from hands-on experience. I'm going to learn every department I can. And then that way, by the time I become a director, um, I know how to run a, a film set, which is the other big part. You know, you have to have a vision of some sort, <laughs> but you also have to be able to understand how a film set comes together. Um, you can get by without that, but you're, if your film isn't successful, you're not going to have very many more chances. Whereas if you run a film set really well and the crew really likes the work working with you and working the work that you do, even if the film isn't like a breakaway success, um, as long as it does okay, you're still going to get more chances. Like no one wants to hire back the the tyrant director that makes, you know, <laughs> terrible films or even mediocre films. You know, you have to make really good films in order to be a, a asshole on set all the time. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock is like rolling over in his grave right now. <laughs> well, he's like, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it worked for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 an option. It's just uh, I like to play the odds, and my I feel like the odds of me making a film 
you know, especially previous to now and having it, you know, be something amazing. It, it just, I just wasn't there yet. I needed to develop those skills. And so at least bring the people along with me, you know, <laughs> instead of trying to burn all the bridges on the first one, because you better really get that first one right if that's how you're going to operate. <laughs> Well, and I would imagine like you can also be a genius and not be a jerk. Like you can be a genius mm -hmm. who has a really amazing vision and is able to bring it oh, to yeah. fruition and also like work well with other people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's 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 the unicorn right there. And it's fantastic. And I, that's what I'm hoping to develop myself into. And some people start there, you know, I think there's been people that are just amazing directors off the bat. And they also understand how logistics work and how these all pieces come together. And it's just a matter of what they picked up, you know, Younger. Nobody's born a director in terms of the knowledge. You actually have to learn the knowledge behind it. You might be born wanting to be one, but you do have to develop it. So um, I really like asking this question because I feel like it helps me discover something about each person that comes on this show. What would you be doing if you weren't working in film? <laughs> that is a great question. Um so growing up, I had two things I wanted to do that I knew I couldn't do both. Um, filmmaking was one. And the reason I picked filmmaking is because I felt like the possibilities were endless. Like if you're a filmmaker, you can do anything. You can go to space. You can, you know, not literally, but with your visions, you can go to space. You can be a spy. You can, you know, go back to the Civil War. You can go to the future 100 years. You can do whatever your imagination tells you and then put that onto a film, which is I, that's why that one eventually went out. But Oddly enough, my other choice was something in like, like intelligence or like FBI or some sort of, um, I think what it was is I always felt like I wanted to see more balance in the world and also be like involved in keeping things running in a way. And so like, I wanted to have a job that made me feel in, I guess, intricate and kind of important to letting society function. <laughs> and so um yeah that was like my idea just to be like a you know like cia or fbi or some sort of you know department of defense something that was doing something to keep people uh safe i guess gotcha well um i will have an episode at some point in the future with um a mutual acquaintance of ours lindsay harrison about her career oh. in um the foreign service so that i think is kind of Fantastic. in similar vein and if i am able to get anyone in the future who's like in you know intelligence or espionage i'll definitely yes. let you know <laughs> oh yeah i had the dream of being the you know the american james bond <laughs> you could do it as long as you have a tuxedo which i would imagine yeah. as a working in film you've got to have yeah, i'm sure yeah. maybe not maybe not own but i could definitely acquire one <laughs> Just talk to your uh, your costume, your wardrobe department. Oh, yes. Yes. There we go. <laughs> so my last question for you is, what would you like to be asked about your career in films? Um, you know, I think we the biggest thing that we covered that I and I'd like to emphasize a lot is just to to do things, you know, like don't don't wait around for people to make the decisions for you. Um, so you know, that's the other advice I would give to anyone trying to get involved in filmmaking is, you know, surround yourself with it. And every film is its own job. So you can, maybe your first one is terrible. And it's like, wow, that was a shit show. I never want to work in film again, but they're not all like that. And so, you know, it isn't, and it isn't for everyone. And I get that. And sometimes that's a good way to determine if it is or isn't. Um, but, you know, it, it is much more accessible to anyone 
that isn't in a filmmaking area. Um, but you kind of have to gravitate to those filmmaking areas. Uh, you know, so for someone living in the Dakotas or Montana, you know, in Midwest, except for maybe Chicago, um, or the Pacific Northwest, unfortunately, is hasn't had the strongest um it 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 does have a good independent filmmaking community. Um, and so I don't wanna I, I just it wasn't working for me. I couldn't get myself in to um the size of projects that I wanted to there, but you can find it anywhere. Uh, but I do feel like getting involved in the industry, even if that's not what you want to do full time, you know, if you want to just do indies, do your own thing. Um, at least you learn what movies are doing to be created. And it's really not that hard to become a member of a film crew. <laughs> Some of the people we work with sometimes, you're like, I don't know how you still, how you still get on all these film sets. Uh, so, you know, they're looking for good people. We're always looking for people who want to work and want to do the job. Um, and it's not hard to move up. You just literally have to do the job that you're asked to do. Great. Well, those are all my questions. So thank you so much for um, giving me some of your time today. I know you're um, very busy with projects, so I really do appreciate it. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be a freelance photographer. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anderson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests, and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!